My name is George Daigle. I am a member of the Missions Committee. And um, it is my great pleasure and honor to introduce Brent Howland. Brent is the Vice President of International Messengers. Just a couple of things about International Messengers. The concept of International Messengers, I am, actually took place in the heart and mind of Bob Rasmussen back in 1980. It was four years later when God opened up the doors for this new missions organization to be born. It has since grown into a multi-country, multi-country international ministry. <clears throat> Here are just a few facts about IM. There are 163 adults, 63 North Americans, 100 nationalists serving with IM in Canada, China, Cyprus, Czech Republic, Egypt, England, France, Hungary, India, Jordan, we're not done yet, Kazakhstan, Lithuania, Nepal, Peru, Poland, Romania, Russia, Slovakia, South Africa, Thailand, Uganda, Ukraine, and in the U.S. In the various ministries listed above, the staff families, the staff family includes 22 nationalities. There are 42 adults plus many volunteers working with IM in North America to serve and to care for this ministry staff. I think Bob would probably say something like, never think small because God is so great. Here's Brent. I want to uh, also promote this. It's a little booklet from IM. It has great stories, great information, and in there it says um, where you can serve and opportunities to serve. So please pick one up on the back. Out there. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, George. Thanks. Well, our histories have kind of gone like this. Uh, maybe not mine and yours exactly, but uh, uh, but this church and international messengers for sure. And uh, I'm no Bob Rasmussen, but I do realize that Bob never ever shared in a context like this without a little bit of slapstick, okay? That's just who he was. If you ever knew Bob, lots of humor everywhere he went, okay? So um, give it a shot. Knock, knock. Broken pencil. Yeah, never mind. It's pointless. <clears throat> yep. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. You should have kept the drummer up here, right? You should have kept the drummer um, it's our prayer that that wouldn't be the case, that uh, God would be able to have his way in our hearts by his spirit this morning. Uh, as we start, I'd like to have you take that bulletin. I know there's some blank space in there for the, for the sermon notes or whatever, but I'd like to take some time, instead of writing notes, to uh, draw a little picture, if you would. Um, you know, like, yeah, if you're an artist, this probably isn't your thing. I mean, Pictionary style, uh, one minute or less, I want you to draw three things, okay? I want you to draw uh, yourself, you know, like stick figure you, okay? Uh, no elaborate self-portraits, just uh, you and uh, God, maybe just a triangle. I know you can't draw God. This isn't some weird test, okay? Uh, uh, G-O-D. 
And then I want you to draw uh, an ocean or a lake, a body of water, and that is going to represent your sin. You, sin ocean, God. Those three things. And the idea is, where is God and you, and where are God and you in relation to your sin? How would you draw that? I'm going to stand up here, and uh, instead of humming the Jeopardy theme song while you do that, I'm going to just kind of talk for a minute about uh, some of what's going on in Egypt. Okay, So you go ahead, just uh, make your little drawings of your three things. I want to tell you about the Coptics. Uh, Coptic is a uh, um, label, a denomination, a uh, division of Christianity uh, in the most general sense that's specific to Egypt. Egyptian Christians know themselves as Coptic Christians. Uh, They've been around since roughly 300 A.D., and as an old tradition, have a lot of uh, traditionalism and a lot of uh, empty ritual and such. But the Coptics have this thing they do with their children. Between the age of one and two, they uh, uh, make a tattoo on their child's wrist right here on the inside of a cross, about uh, one inch or so, tiny little cross with ink and a needle um, on that child's wrist. And they wear that, of course. They don't have a choice. They wear that for all their life. And so along with their birth certificate that says Christian and their driver's license that says Christian, they have this tattoo on their wrist that will always say Christian to everybody in the Middle East. As a discriminated minority, that little cross keeps them marginalized. It keeps them, a lot of them anyway, in generational poverty because they can't get certain jobs. They can't keep jobs. They're uh, passed over for advancement. A lot of them are worse than just marginalized. They're uh, discriminated against and persecuted. Um, For the women, it has a meaning way beyond not getting a job sometimes. For women, it makes them a target of victimization by middle-aged Muslim men and by harassment. And all of that sounds terrible. But the real terrible thing about it is they carry this mark without the benefit of it. Without the life-giving benefit of relationship with Jesus. Without the promise of eternity in heaven with Him. Imagine facing the difficulties of persecution and the difficulties of bearing the name of Christ without really knowing Him. Without anybody having ever explained, you know, He means to have relationship with you. Without anybody ever saying, this changes everything. There's a good news that Jesus came and it's not just some story and things you got to know. It's life. Imagine bearing that mark without carrying that benefit. That's, to me, the most tragic part of the whole thing. Okay, hopefully you're done with your your little picture. Um, 
I don't know how you drew that. You might have, uh, you know, you here and sin here and God on this side, or maybe God's above and you're down in the middle of it, just, you know, treading water. Uh, maybe he's uh, pulling you out. I don't know. But we're going to come back to that picture at the end here today. So just uh, bear that in mind of, of what that looks like. This message can be summarized in a, a couple of words, uh, relationship and isolation. And I want to use those words to kind of uh, draw the picture of God's good news for us. See, Satan's way is to keep us isolated. And God's way is to provide relationship, to redeem fallen relationships so they aren't characterized mostly by isolation. Hebrews 12.2. It's our key passage this morning. Uh, let's read that together here. I'll, I'll read it. Hebrews 12.2. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Uh, some of the translations uh, say, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The idea that Jesus is writing that faith story onto us as, uh, as we go. And then this is the phrase or the, the sentence that I really want us to hone in on. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. What was that? The joy that was waiting for him. And if you read the rest of the verse, it talks about Jesus taking his place at the right hand of the Father. Um, but I don't think that's adequate to describe the joy that's waiting for him. So he went to the cross because he knew that someday he would have what's his, that place by God's right hand. That, that's not enough to describe why Jesus went to the cross because he had that before he ever went to the cross. He went to the cross in order to obtain relationship with you. A few excerpts I'd like to, to share with you from uh, the book of Revelation, these last two chapters of Revelation. Um, heaven isn't just that place. You know, we got this idea about what heaven is like, you know, clouds, angels, gold, stuff like that. Uh, but the key characteristic of heaven is there's no sin at all. Imagine. Imagine a place where there's no sin that messes up the relationships. Imagine your own relationships with people and, and all the, the reason to, to not trust, all of those reasons are gone. And not just subtracted, like gone as in no knowledge of that kind of stuff at all. And so trust is easy and complete and not hesitatingly given. Key attribute of heaven is that there's no sin muddling up our relationship with God. The angel says in chapter 21, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. 
and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And, you know, when you read the text, you can't hear the tone. But I always imagine the angel saying it with this, can you believe this type of attitude? Wow. God's place is going to be with them. Their place is going to be with him forever and without all this junk. The Lord himself says, look, I am making everything new. And then it says a little later, there will no longer will there be a curse upon anything. They will see his face, his name will be written on their foreheads, and there will be no night there. And then uh, one more that I, I didn't think of until later, but right at the end, uh, it says, come. At the end of Revelation, come. All who are thirsty, come. And drink freely from the water of life. The Spirit and the bride say, come. So all of that is meant, this, this talk about heaven, the reason I bring that to you is to show that I think his purpose in going to the cross, this joy that was set before him or the joy that's awaiting him out there is this kind of relationship. So when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you begin or he begins a relationship with you that you will always have. But there's coming a day when that relationship with him is going to go to a whole new place. What this story of faith that he has authored or that he is authoring is going to take this quantum leap forward and this struggle with the flesh will be done. And there'll be no curse and there'll be no darkness. And our place will be with him. And I think what Hebrews 12.2 teaches is that he was looking forward to that so much that the shame and disgrace and horror of the cross seemed like a good deal to go through. Yep, I'll do that. Oh, yeah, you betcha I will. I mean, look what's going to come from that. Let's talk about shame for a minute. He endured the shame. Shame. One uh, translation says, scorning the shame. It's different from sin. Sin is the wrong that I do or that we do, but shame is the identity that we take on related to sin. Um, It goes with believing Satan's lies about us and about God and about our sin. Probably in our little picture that we drew, there's some of Satan's shame story that he tries to write on us that uh, influences how we might draw that thing in our relationship with God and sin. So, shame identity. Let me give you a little example to kind of help explain. Uh, when I was a little boy, uh, they used to do things differently with report cards, right? They would send it in the mail to our parents. And uh, many an hour was spent in my young life uh, building uh, elaborate strategies on how to intercept the report card. 
You know, the mail came during the day while I was at school. But if I could somehow, you know, um, sabotage the mail truck, if I could uh, get out of school, sneak out and sneak back, if I could, uh, yeah, somehow cause a diversion so my parents wouldn't be home when it arrived, lots of schemes. When a child gets uh, all F's, on their report card, there's some things that that means, right? Uh, maybe it means there's some ability issues, uh, some, some learning problems. Uh, probably it means uh, some things about how well or how poorly that child listens in class and does the homework and etc. cetera. Um, but what it's meant to mean is here's, here's the level that's been achieved academically. Okay, this much could be done, he did this much, or this much, right? That's what it's meant to say. Here's what's been achieved. But when the parent says to that child, looks at that report card with all those big red Fs and says, you are so stupid. Why can't you do anything right? then the child, the child carries forward that shame story. And even as an adult, when there's some failure, some setback, some embarrassment, when he loses his job, when he uh, uh, gets rejected by someone, you know what he hears, right? You are such a failure. You are so stupid. Why can't you do anything right? And I bet, I bet that even if you had great parents and you got great grades, I bet you know what I'm talking about when I talk about that shame story. We carry those with us forward everywhere we go. go. Jesus, it says, endured the shame. When the Romans crucified people, they meant for it to be humiliating They meant for it to be public. It was a deterrent. You know, of course it was meant to be painful and torturous and agonizing, but it was meant to be a public agony, a public humiliation, to keep anybody else from trying things. But I suspect that there was a a shame thing going on that was bigger than the nakedness and and all of that type of embarrassment of the cross, I suspect that Satan was saying some things to Jesus there on the cross. You are such a failure. This proves it, you know. Where's your father now? If he loves you so much, then where is he? What's going on? How could this happen? And on and on and on and on with the shame lies. But Jesus endured that because of the joy that he was going to have later. The joy that he was anticipating is you and relationship with you. It's hard for me to fathom that all the way 
that Jesus might say something to, to Satan like, Oh yeah? Oh yeah? I'm going to have a relationship with Brent Howland. Take that. And use that as his argument against the enemy about why this is all worth it. And why those lies are worth rejecting. Let's move on to Genesis here. I'm going to go back and read uh, the Genesis story with you. Um, you know about the creation days, right? What did it say at, each, at the end of each creation day? It said, and God saw that it was good. And the last day, and that it was very good. Um, but what was bad in Eden? I'm talking about before the serpent, before sin, and all of that. There was one thing that was not good in the Garden of Eden. It says, it was not good that the man should be alone. Isolation. Even there, before the whole sin picture uh, uh, developed, it was not good that man should be alone. And so uh, the Lord solved that problem by creating Eve. And it says in 2.25, Now the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. The word naked there indicates being known. It's not just about, not only about physical nakedness. It's about being all the way known and all the way accepted. That's God's solution for the isolation problem is that you would be both known and accepted. They felt no shame. Genesis 3, 1 through 8. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say You must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden. Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit in the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. Well, God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. And if you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows. Your eyes will be opened. As soon as you eat it, you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Satan understood that the only not good there in Eden was Adam's aloneness. And so what did he do? He did the same thing that he does today. He tried to isolate Adam and Eve. First, he tries to isolate them from God by telling them that God can't be trusted. You know, God's probably holding out on you. I think that's what's going on here. I imagine Satan it's Satan saying this stuff in some sort of uh, uh, some sort of hush hush whisper whisper kind of thing. I mean, really, 
So you can eat of every tree except the best one? Is that what you're saying? Why is that? I'll tell you why. It's because God knows if you eat from that tree, you'll know too much. Then you'll be independent. You'll be able to do what you want. You won't be stuck in this life. You'll be free when you eat of that for good and evil and whatever you decide. I don't know why God would keep something that good from you. If you take that same monologue from the enemy, uh, let's move it into a context that maybe is a little more identifiable for us. Uh, For me, uh, I don't know about you, I don't really have fruit-eating temptations. Okay? It's not my issue. Oh, I got to quit with the fruit. You know, it just, I'm always going back and wanting more and more and more. (laughs) I think he might do something uh, like that same whisper. You know what's really going, going on here? I think God's holding out on you. I mean, this whole thing with your sexuality, why does it have to be like he says? You know he's older than time, technically, right? And so you think he should decide what's right for you? Come on. Come on. I think God's made these rules because he's trying to keep you from something good. I mean, who's it hurt, really? God just doesn't want you to be in charge. You can decide about the pornography. You can decide about your partner. You can decide about your sexuality. God knows if you become in charge of all these kind of things, then you won't need him anymore at all. You'll have free reign to decide what's good and evil. Just like Adam and Eve, when we start to doubt that God can really be trusted, when we start to, like Eve, kind of hmm to Satan's lies, then we're set up perfectly line in line for a dive right off the cliff into the ocean of sin and all the shame identity stuff that goes with it. If you go back to verses 7 and 8, it said, uh, At that moment their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. This identity that went along with their sin. And so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, you know, why does that detail even need to be in there? That the wind was blowing that evening. So they sewed leaves together together and the wind was blowing and then they run ran and hid in the forest behind the trees okay you get the imagery there those leaves weren't gonna be enough to cover the type of nakedness they had and it's still true it's still true the lie is that hiding is what's safe The lie is that if I become more isolated 
and I keep people from knowing the real me, if I keep people from knowing about my sin ocean, and I let them think, well, it exists, but it's small, more like a lake, maybe a pond. I mean, yeah, my good day is a puddle at most. I don't have a sin ocean, you know. We, we start pushing people away from our real story, which makes us more and more isolated, and the lie from the enemy is that's where safety is. It's in hiding. But God means for us to be known, and the good news is he provided this safe relationship for us. On our own, we have no way to cope with sin and brokenness. But we were never meant to be alone from the day we were created. We were never meant to be alone. We were meant for relationship with God. And in that relationship, the safety of being fully known and unashamed is available to us. That's what he provides, freedom from that shame story. He went to the cross and took the shame of it so we wouldn't have to have that identity. And I can say no to that identity. That is not who I am. On my worst, very worst day, I am Christ in Brent Howland with all the righteousness that he provides. Not just a little bit on my good days, all the righteousness that he provides, fully right with God. And God provides relationship within the body too. Relationships with other people so that we would be known. God took on all that. Jesus took on all of that in order to give us these, this uh, not-aloneness, this new freedom in relationship with him. Shame-free relationship. Uh, to give us a way that we don't have to hide stuff anymore. Let's go back to our picture from the beginning. Satan tells us uh, where, you, where we are in relation to God and to our sin. Uh, and, you know, if you're like me, you're tempted to believe that the stink of that water is just on me all the time, and it's the first thing that everybody smells when they're around me. But I think the Lord would say to me and to all of us, you know, nope, stop it. That's paid for. That's paid for. And you know what? I love you so much. It was so worth it. And all I smell now is roses, okay? So stop it with that shame stuff. No. I will never, ever leave you, is his message. So a great follow-up from this message, a couple of things. Maybe redraw that picture if the Lord himself, in light of what we've talked about here today, in light of Hebrews 12.2 and those verses in Revelation, if the Lord himself were drawn that little picture about himself and you 
in your sin, what would it look like then if he were the one drawing that? He's not waiting for you to get it all together, get your sin all fixed up, find some giant sponge and soak up that ocean, and then he'll be close to you. He's not waiting for you to fix it. He's saying, I'm here, right here. That's our true story that he's authoring. Like the Egyptians, we are marked. Not quite tattooed, but we are marked now by the relationship with Christ. We have a whole new identity, a whole new creation, born-again life that he has made us into. And it's just too good. It's too good to keep to ourselves. God did all this for me, not only so that I could have this. Certainly, he did it for me because of love for me. But he loves me enough and understands me enough to know that the joy that's available to me is available in relationship. And so if I hold the gospel inside me like some sort of safety deposit box that nobody can ever get into, then I'm missing on, on what's available. There's a joy in relationship that's available as you give away this precious treasure that the Lord has given us. As we take it to others, we find even more freedom. We, we find we're able to savor this new identity even more than we were before before when we were just trying to cherish it. And so now, now, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. He's not on the other side of my sin. He's right here with me. And I think he's got his arm around me. And, he, you know, he can see that big old ocean and, and everything. And he says, you know what, Brent? Let's go. Let's go. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for this opportunity this morning. We thank you more than anything just that you went to the cross for us and somehow saw that as like the best deal ever. And we are just... uh, Uh, Thank you seems too small, but we are very, very thankful for that, Lord. And then, Lord, I pray that in light of this precious treasure that you've put inside of us, in light of this new identity that you've given us, Lord, I pray that you give us courage to go beyond ourselves. We even need you to provide. uh, We can't muster enough of that to make it work somehow. And so we trust you for that part of it too. In Jesus' name, amen.